life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening. Welcome to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition. There's another show tomorrow night, starting at 8 o'clock. Tomorrow night, we speak with Steve Kilby of The Church. Man, he's an animated, frank, straight-up, good-fun chat. He really is. And he even has a lash at New Zealand, and it's hilarious. What was it like growing up in Canberra? Bloody yeah, awful. Your... Canberra was like eternally being in New Zealand. Really <laughs> sterile. <laughs> yeah, famously of The Church. It's great chat tomorrow night. Later on this evening... Why do we let people harvest thousands and thousands of rare native birds just to eat them? Oh, sorry, rare native fish. Well, that's all right then. Is it a freshwater report after 10 o'clock, I think, this evening? I think it's in front of me. Yes, it will be. Rodriguez tickets are selling really fast. Um, that's good. But if you want to get in, get in now. Might even hear a tune from Rodriguez. And he's an amazing story in rock. Somehow his music just sounds familiar, even if you haven't heard it before. One of those sort of cats. Um, all right, science stuff this hour, as usual. Hello, if you've downloaded the podcast. Grant Smithy's astronomy piece. There are quite a few links up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage you might want to have a look at. Oh, an amazing one. Um, taken from the surface of Mars, a solar eclipse. The, one of the moons, I think it's Phobos, goes in front of the sun. Imagine having a video of that. Well, you can go and have a look at it. Taken from Curiosity, one of those rover things that's on Mars. But next up, science-wise, marine reserves with marine biologist Rochelle Constantine. And different ways of looking at marine reserves. I'll let her explain. It's pretty fascinating stuff. She's a whaleologist, I think. Very good evening. You're tuned in. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Science Report this week, Rochelle Constantine, uh, our resident marine biologist. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. She's uh, just come down from the 32nd floor of MediaWorks Marine Biology Wing. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you want to talk about marine protected areas. We've got marine reserves. They get a bit of um, acknowledgement and they do good things. Goat Island was our first, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, New Zealand's at the forefront of protecting marine areas entirely from any kind of take. Mm. So, you know, if you go to any of the marine protected areas around New Zealand, waters they you're not even allowed to take a grain of sand you're allowed to take nothing and so the idea of them were was to to establish these places where there was no no take of any kind of recreational fishing commercial fishing or anything just areas where the ecosystem could be left alone to do what it needs to do because it had been a long time since we'd seen what that was like (laughs) it had we we made a 
a big mess in our ocean environment in a very short space of time. Sort of mostly through the mid 1900s, as as technology advanced, you know, we were sort of suddenly able to take out larger vessels. We had better um, ways of detecting prey. You know, so we could have we could have. Um, um, you know, these sonar devices on boats that could go long way offshore and then catch more and more fish and stay at sea. And, and mm. you know, so, so actually what fishing used to be like and then what it shifted to made a very big impact on our ocean resources in a relatively short space of time. Oh, and there's also, um, before we feel... Yeah. Um, that it's, that it's all Europeans as well. The seals, they went quite early with the um, first Polynesians to come here too. There used to be seals everywhere. Yeah, there's, I mean, if you think about all of New Zealand, the minute that humans arrived, yeah. we started causing a bit of a ruckus, you know, and, and that's what humans do, you know. Yeah. We're part of the food chain, we're part of the whole system. But the thing is, I think one of the big challenges that, occurred world round, not just in New Zealand, but all over the world, was, you know, the sudden realisation in sort of late 1900s, around 1980 or so, mm-hmm. yeah, where it was like, whoa, wait a minute, we're losing all the big things. You know, where are the sharks going? Where are the billfish going? The tunas, you know, the, these big fish. And sure, you know, we'd had um, whaling prior to that and, you know, sealing and all kinds of, you know, large animal hunting that had gone on mostly through the 1800s and early mid-1900s. But this sort of um, fishing take increased. Now, in a country like New Zealand, where we're really close to the sea, we are ocean people, there's mm. no doubt about it. Um, we we like to fish. We like to eat fish. We, you know, fish is actually a really important um, market for us on the global trade. So we make a lot of money out of our ocean resources, most of it wild caught, um, increasingly, uh, you know, uh, aquaculture as well. But there was just this moment sort of around that 1970s, 80s, where it was like, Taihua, you know, we are making a mess. And so it was quite a revolutionary thing of the time to implement these completely no-take areas. Now, throughout the world, there's all kinds of different marine reserves, but there are very few countries, if any, that have such tight regulations around marine protected areas that we have in New Zealand. They are fully no-take and they are for scientific research, which is something often forgotten. Mm. And I know that it's increasingly challenging for scientists to work in some of these protected areas, but that was the purpose, to learn about ecosystems from these sort of intact places. As research has gone on globally, um, and there's been some really lovely um, analyses in recent years of you know, how are marine protected areas throughout the world doing? And from fully no-take like New Zealand to other places where you might allow some recreational fishing but not commercial fishing. And what they found is that, you know, overall you need fully no-take reserves. They work. But they need to be reasonably large. And in New Zealand, a lot of ours are quite small. When you say they work... What do you mean? They work in the sense that the ecosystems restore. So around um, a lot large parts of New Zealand, we have these kinna barrens, which are places where, um, because we've removed fishes that eat kinna, the kinna have uh, done very well. They've eaten the kelp, and the kelp forests are gone. And we know the kelp forests are places where there's a lot of biodiversity can live in, on, and around the kelp. So it's a sea of kinna. Yeah, so you get a sea of kinna, you know, at this sort of, you know, 10, 15 metre depth. And that's not uncommon throughout New Zealand. And we have a kelp, rocky reef kelp system for our near shore systems. So, but if we we stop taking out those sort of 
bigger predators that feed on the kelp. Then the system restores, the forests come back, we get greater biodiversity, etc. But also in addition, we know um, that that the fish that are not being taken in these, you know, from these reserved areas, they grow to be larger, they, they have more uh, reproductive output because there's more of them. But because the sea is this dynamic ocean space you know it's not like the the eggs and that and the larvae just stay in that space they actually there is the downstream effect and that's been shown multiple times for multiple species so actually having these fully no-take marine protected areas are a really great idea it's a but, factory for people who want to catch fish well it is yeah you go if you go to a lot of the mpas i've seen them a few times you know around new zealand and you'll see people sitting near the edge of it you know on right. the because you know every now and then the the fish swims out or the crayfish walks walks its way out and particularly we know I'm that for goat to island say cheat <laughs> it is a little bit cheating, yeah. but but you know you're you're allowed to but i think these are really important things is that we like to fish and we want to take kaimwana but how do we how do we make sure that the way we do that is going to work for all of us into the future? So one of the things that we know with these full no-take marine protected areas, one, mainland New Zealand by proportion has, I think it's a, something like one or two percent of our fully no-take marine protected areas around mainland New Zealand. I think it's about 99% of our area protected is either at the Kermadex or down in the sub-Antarctic, so places where most Kiwis don't go. So we kind of need to have a little reflection on that. But the main thing is that um, these cause a lot of disagreement and conflict between and within communities about protecting an area. You know, the whole, well, I've always fished here and I fished here with my, you know, my grandparents or whatever it might be. And certainly for a lot of um, Māori, you know, they have a cultural, you know, right to that place that's embedded in them. And so I think their, you know, MPAs are critically important and we must have them. But it's led me to, to think about other forms of protection. So in New Zealand, because we're New Zealand and we're really lucky, we actually have written under our fisheries legislation um, Taiapuri and Mataitai, which are two particular, particularly interesting um, fisheries management methods. So they're embedded under the law. The Mataitai is um, uh, iwi or hapu managed uh, recreational and cultural fishery in a particular area. So it's usually in coastal waters nearby and they manage it. So they have a, a, a governance group who agree on what can be taken, not just for hui or tangi, but just in general use of that area and how they're going to manage you know, the takes so that they are sustainable, so that the fish stocks and the, the ecosystem actually functions better than if you just had a wholesale, mm. you know, take of the area. The other one, the um, taiapuri, is I think something where we can move forward, at least in the first instance, with thinking in a different way about marine protection. And these have been going established in the mid-1990s, particularly around the South Island. There were a few established early on. And they are a mixed model of no-take area, areas for recreational cultural harvest, but also areas where there might be commercial fishing allowed. So they're within estuary and coast, estuarine and coastal waters, and they're a community-managed system. So they're not just Māori 
they're for all communities and there's some really successful ones that have now been going for well almost 30 yeah 30 years mm-hmm. and um, they're a really interesting model because what often happens is the community gets together and really looks at their coastal space goes what do we want so it's that local management you know it's they've got sort to of know what's there they've got to know what's there though that's right don't they? Because there would be some species take that may be actually advantageous to uh, r- restoring a better biodiversity absolutely so what's been happening that's kind of cool is that that um, these local communities then go okay if we have to manage it we have to know it and so they are upskilling getting trained working alongside universities or you know people to 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 then actually run their own um, surveys mm. you know doing transit surveys or collecting information so they're actually actively engaged you know their marine space isn't something they sit on the top of and throw a line over Mm. it's actually something that they go out and survey and because of that they have a much greater appreciation of of what's going on in that that space now some people have always done that but when you put it on a community level it's incredibly empowering for that community because they have a sense of ownership and what we've found in a few places is that they've in almost all of the Taiapuri, there's an area where they go, okay, we're going to leave this area because it's quite important, we want it to restore, and it becomes, by default, a marine protected area in some way. And usually it's like, well, we'll leave it for a few years. Okay, we'll leave it for a few more years. And there's some of these spaces that have now had decades long full protection, right. but... Arahu is Arahu, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really fascinating. And I think that's something in New Zealand that, that you know, maybe we need to look look at a little more than we do because yeah. a lot of people aren't really mindful of it. I've got to salute uh, the memory of Bill Ballantyne too. He was at mm. university when I was studying with him. <laughs> um, and he was just such a wonderfully... Um, uh, driven man. He had yeah. he could come up with uh, Churchillian put downs. Um, <laughs> yeah. He never stopped. He was behind the uh, the first marine reserve at, at Goat Island. Absolutely. And, and I remember him just being so wild. He says, the marine reserve there is just so popular that now the local authority is wanting to put expand the car park. And he said, expand the effing car park <laughs> expand the effing reserve <laughs> exactly and he made such sense <laughs> he did anyway um, i'll never forget that that was great yeah there he, and he, he didn't was an say effing man. no no he didn't <laughs> he didn't stop <laughs> he was tenacious there's yeah. no doubt about it yeah and that reserve does need to be expanded we've shown that yeah. that uh, numbers of crayfish and that aren't uh, aren't increasing in fact they're decreasing because they're marching outside the reserve and so there's a push to actually increase the size of it to make it more meaningful. Let's talk about some iconic species. Uh, oh, you know, like big ones. Blue, a blue whale sanctuary. Um, they big animals, aren't they? <laughs> they are <laughs> the biggest that's ever existed on the planet, as far as we know. Yep, that's right. Yep. We've got plenty. Have we got lots? Yeah, it's interesting. We've got uh, pygmy blue whales, so they're only 25 oh, metres long. <laughs> but we do get blue whales in our waters. We hear them. We oh. don't often see them, but we hear them. But, yeah, so we've we've got um, uh, pygmy blue whales in New Zealand waters year-round. At the moment, we've got 
I think there's been up to 12 of them counted out in the Hauraki Gulf. Wow. Figure. But mostly they're known from their um, aggregations off the broader sort of Taranaki Bight region. And so they come there around about January through March, April-ish, um, where there's this upwelling of water. So it's where the warm water from the north and the cold water from the south meet and you get this upwelling. And the minute you've got that mixing of cold and warm water, you get productivity. And so there's more phytoplankton and then there's more zooplankton and there's this sort of krill-like thing called nictiphanes. And it's a, a really important prey item for the blue whales, the pygmy blue whales. So um, there's been some studies going on. A colleague of mine, Lee Torres, who's now at Oregon State University, uh, and also uh, Kim Getz, who's at NIWA, led uh, a tagging study that I was involved in earlier this year. And what we what we know is that this place is really important as long as the upwelling happens. So um, the Greens, as part of their you know coming into Parliament, they wanted to make a, a protected area, a blue whale sanctuary around that broader Taranaki Bight region, um, mostly around, you know, concerns people have with seismic um, effort going on. The only thing is that scientists like me and, and others were just like, oh, don't put a box around it because these large mobile animals don't live in boxes. They don't sort of hit the edge and there's a nice fence like mm. we put around our houses and go, oh, well, I'll stop now. They move and this summer was a classic because all, it was so warm that the upwelling occurred considerably further south. In fact, down off Westport Way, so way down off the South Island and all of the whales moved and they were found in completely odd places. So... Um, um, there's a few of us been talking for a little while now about a dynamic marine protected area. So these single species sanctuaries are fraught with difficulty. You know, to be honest, we should be protecting the nictiphanes because that's the thing that's important. But if you protect that species, there is follow-on for others. That's isn't right. There? That's it's right. like some sanctuaries for uh, a, a, a strange lizard yeah. has helped everything else. That's right, and that's exactly what'll come. You know, come from this. And so the idea is because we know that you know seismic can cause an impact on um, larval production in uh, zooplankton. You know, so so it's not just the big animals that can get affected. In fact, the little ones can be more affected. Oh. It's another story. But the thing is that if we want to protect blue whales, right, then we need to think differently about it. And so there's this, this sort of, um, I think, time for New Zealand to have a discussion around dynamic, a dynamic marine protected area, that because we now have access to all of this remote sense data, so we have access to satellite data and uh, ocean, you know, to map oceanographic currents and patterns and products activity and uh, there's you know great work going on in New Zealand using this and if we can take all of these big remote sensed environmental layers they can be responsive to you know the El Nino La Nina cycles all of that then we could actually move the protected area according to where the prey is and then we can go okay are there actually any threats to the whales right. in this place no cool or actually we're going to find them right here and you know potentially there's a big Survey, fishing so it's like a weather forecast. Whatever. It shifts. Yeah, that's right. It shifts. Or a seasonal and it moves. operation. Yeah. It's and over here this time. We know that's that's acting on better knowledge. That's right. And because you know New Zealand's, you know our ocean is is vast and incredibly dynamic, um, and and always changing. There's natural ebbs and flows, but with climate change as well, there are other changes going on. So we're in this really interesting situation where in New Zealand we think about protection 
as a terrestrial thing, you know, whereas mm. was ocean protection is much more challenging. And that is why I've been you know, thinking quite a lot about this and I've been discussing it with, you know, Doc and, and the minister and various others around how do we actually make a new forward-thinking kind of protection that truly does what we want it to do. And also then everyone has a bit of buy-in to the conversation. You're not protecting too much water, locking it up for no reason in case all the animals move because... Mm this year was a good example, you know, but we can actually make meaningful moves uh, to protecting the ocean space. Okay, so, pragmatically and with the true science of the matter, is yeah. oil exploration bad for the whales? Uh, current, or is it a feel bad, feel good thing? <laughs> currently, the way that most of the seismic surveys are going on, they pose a low risk to, to the whales. Okay. But if we had a lot more and like there was a big survey this summer off, off Taranaki that was a bit disturbing because it was persistent and uh, very large scale, that was of concern to some of us. What does we it need to do be to them? Well, it, it, the underwater noise you can detect from a very long way and our mm. you know, hydrophone arrays have done exactly that. I think it just becomes very annoying and possibly causes a kind of a low-level stress, okay. which we know is not good for them, potentially displaces them, mm. and if it affects their prey, that's a bigger problem because right. then they have to move. Yeah, and it's not just imaginary uh, the or, or assumption, an assumption that it stresses them out. The, the cortisone's been tested on them, hasn't that's it? Right. And they, that's right. You can right. tell, yeah. yeah, they are stressed. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this is we have to have a better conversation around this and just get out of our corners, come to the middle and have a good corridor. Okay, <laughs> good for you, Rochelle Constantine. Thank you very much. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Hello, Grant. Hello, Graham. All right. How's your seeing been this week? Oh, it's been pretty good. It was sort of a bit of poor weather for a little while, but it's uh, it's been pretty productive the last few weeks, actually. It's not bad. Okay. You want to tell us what you're working on? Uh, sort of out of the blue here. Literally. Yeah, no, the no. They're mi microlensing, which is uh, just uh, the and just a couple of supernovae that we're measuring for people. Oh, cool. Uh, that, uh, so this is just part of global network. So we hardly ever talk about what you do. No, no, no. Well, it's just so routine. <laughs> Not for most of us. Anyway, we have a few complimentary video links that may. Um, expand on what we're talking about and give you a bit of a visual treat as well up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. If you click on the bit that says click here for this weekend's lineup and you'll find the astronomy links pretty near the top. It all should be pretty obvious, although in the in with the internet I do notice that things can hide very, very well in plain sight. Where is it? Where's that link? I can't see it. It's there. But I've missed things too that have yeah. been right in front of me. Um, now, uh, first up, we've got this, um, uh, you're zooming into this Ryugu thing. We've talked about Ryugu for the last three or four weeks. Well, it's, it's so interesting. It's a fascinating UFO-shaped um, Well, actually, on that, on that shape, the fact yeah. that it looks sort of kind of angular and it's sort of like its equator's quite sharp. It's not sort of rounded like the Earth's equator. It's actually like a sort of a 
geometric structure. It's like it came in a box. Um, I was listening to an astronomer who specialises in looking at asteroids, and that's his field, and he pointed out that, in fact, they uh, that's what you expect to see. In fact, the experts would have expected to see something like that. For um, If you've got a rubble pile, it's just sort of bits of rock all just held together and with the dust and stuff, and it's only just weakly held by gravity, and it's spinning on its axis, then you, it doesn't take up a sphere shape at all. It takes up that, in fact, you end up with almost like a, a, a definite plane around the equator where it's actually quite sharp and it can actually spread out more than that and that's where it would f- throw stuff off as it's turning. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's probably its uh, shape, which struck us as odd, uh, was, uh, is, wasn't that odd. It was sort of kind of expected by people who ah. looked at a number of these things. It's a point I'd never noticed before. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, the flat sides to it, is that part of the deal as well? Yeah, I guess so. It could be uh, a relic of... Uh, I mean, it's obviously had a hit of something. It's got a couple mm. of little impact things. That could have happened uh, a billion years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, th- the whole thing probably resettled again after that. I, I don't mm. know the detailed history. We're going to learn a lot more about it, of course, mm. over the current coming years. And when you have a look at this little um, animation, it's it's from the photographs taken in Ryugu. You, you get up close to it. Just imagine. You, try and find the thing, let alone go and meet it. That's it's right. Just the yeah, work yeah, that no, has gone behind yeah, us yeah, is the, astounding. The whole thing of planning and uh, space tra- spacecraft trajectories is an amazing sort of. Uh, technical problem and uh, they've really got it nailed it's fantastic the way they do it there's something almost spooky about uh the occasional image and sometimes video that we get from mars of one of the moons of mars is phobos Phobos. or deimos um going across the sun yeah i know i yeah that's a great little uh, video uh, that uh, just a very short little clip so curiosity they knew of course that it was going to happen and curiosity was going to see an eclipse of the sun caused by phobos the, one of the two moons of mars and so they pointed the camera up at the sun uh, apparently can cope with that mm. um and they took a series of images and yeah so you know it's a beautiful little image of showing the moon phobos passing in front of the sun now of course the sun is smaller seen on mars than it is on earth by a you know, factor of about two or so yeah. um bit more so it's half the size it would be in our sky um, and, of course, our moon, when you think about it, is just the right distance size and distance from the Earth that it perfectly blots out the sun, so you get yeah. a total eclipse. So Phobos could never do that on, Mar- on, on Mars. No. Yeah, but it does pass in front yeah, of the sun. Yeah, it's fascinating you can see to watch the damn it. Thing. Yeah, you could see the shape quite well. I was quite impressed. I, I must, uh, I'm not quite sure how long it took the event. I, that's mm. something I must check out. Yeah, the thing that strikes me is kind of, um, ooh, is that you feel as though you are standing on Mars. That's right. And looking up. It's uncanny, isn't it? It is really an uncanny feeling. Yeah. All right. Um, Now, some serious science has gone into this animation also of Itakarine. Now, this is kind of a big story. There's a video which does a beautiful job of explaining what's going on uh, with its history. Um, Itakarine, you take it from there. It's a a, a big bangy star. It's it's one of the most interesting stars, pretty much uh, unique in our galaxy. Uh, And uh, we get a very good view of it from the Southern Hemisphere. I started looking at it when I was a youngster. Um, uh, it, It changes in brightness. So it's, it is one of the most massive stars in the galaxy that we know of. Um, and uh, it uh, 
we discovered in the early 1990s or mid-1990s that it actually has another star going around with it. But the crucial thing about Eta Carinae is that it had an enormous outburst in the mid, uh, in about the early 1840s, where it actually brightened up uh, from being sort of fairly ordinary sort of brightness, you know, it's easy naked eye object, but nothing spectacular. Um, some suspicion prior to that that it had been varying in brightness from you know, odd measurements made yeah, up to a century earlier than that. But all of a sudden it brightened up and became the second brightest star in the sky. And astronomers now call that the Great Eruption because we now know it's had a number of these events. This has all been sort of like a jigsaw puzzle that's been pieced together meticulously over a lot of years now. Mm. Um, and so around the time the Treaty of Waitangi was being signed, Canopus would have been the uh, would have been outshone by Eta Carina. It would have been the second brightest star in the sky at that time. And there would have been plenty of astronomers at that time going, "What the hell is uh, going probably on?" Probably were because you know a lot of them were at that time in the early 1840s. They were sort of um, naval people, um, mm. you know, Hobson and his, all his people, and so they they knew the sky well. They used the stars for navigation, and but so. we're well past Herschel and Tycho and those sort of people, aren't we? Yes. Well, Sir John Herschel, uh, uh, the son of William Herschel was uh, the great um, sort of astronomer and he, he observed intensely from Cape Town uh, about 1830, in mid-1830. So he was the first person to take a big, a reasonably big telescope, what was about uh, all around a little under half a metre across, um, which is by now modern standards small, but uh, in that time that was a very big telescope. And he installed it and observed in Cape Town and did a lot of fundamental measurements, uh, scientific measurements of the southern hemisphere sky. Nobody had explored. He found a lot of these new objects simply by sitting in the telescope and watching the sky go by and, oh, that's an interesting cluster and that's an interesting galaxy. Mm. He didn't know what all these things were, but he logged them all. And so he observed a sudden brightening of it too. So there was a precursor to the big outburst, the great eruption. There was another one prior to that, uh, about um, you know, seven or eight years earlier. So anyway, so what the astronomers have done, who are, sort of have been studying this thing intensely, is put together a scenario, which is what the video shows, of what they think has happened. And the crucial thing, that the, the, the break they got, was they're using what's called light echoes. So when this huge eruption occurred the the bright light from that shone outwards from this a huge burst of energy flooded out into the neighbouring part of the galaxy and what the astronomers can do now is see that light reflecting off gas clouds like 150 light years 170 light years away which is mm. how long it took the light to reach there from the time to our modern time so we're now getting the light bouncing back off those uh, objects and so astronomers with big telescopes now can uh, use these things as kind of like mirrors, effectively. They're, they're, they're sort of reflective. They get a bit contaminated by the material that they're reflecting off, but the astronomers can separate all that stuff out. It's amazing. And so they can now piece together what really happened. And this animation is the first time that there's been a sort of a comprehensive picture of what happened that actually meshes up with all these observations, brings them all together. It's not to say there won't be some revisions in the future, but it's pretty much what happened. It looks complicated, though. How did they come well, to this, this conclusion? Is, this is, well, this is what happens with sea stars, you see, the, and, and things happen pretty fast with big stars. They, they have short lives. I mean, a massive star like Eta Carinae, which might have been uh, originally, the original one might have been 150 times the mass of the sun or something like that, uh, would have uh, had a very short life and it shows in the video or the animation of it reaching the end, near the end of its life, suddenly expanding outwards and most of its matter being captured by its companion star that was also a massive star, but right. that companion suddenly became the biggest one and that's now the one that's 
destined to blow up as a um, you know a massive supernova. We don't know when it could have it could be any time. Right. I mean, we, it'll be it would be great to see it. It could be today. It could be. We'd no no way of knowing. In fact, every time I look at it, I, I think you know. Yeah. I wonder if today's the day. You know, I mean, we know what the the physics of what's happening in the interior. There's so much energy there that the and they choose through their uh, fuel supply in such a fast rate. Uh, that uh, these stars live sort of very, um, you know, short lives, these really massive stars, 100 times the mass of the sun, and that's... Um, is, is what the estimate is. So if there is this really weird bright light that happens in the night sky just one day, most likely it's going to be Eta Carina yeah, that's going yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, because it, it's about 2,500 light years away or mm-hmm. something in that order. Uh, 7,000 light years away, sorry. But uh, so that is, it's not going to be... It's no danger to us, but yeah. uh, it certainly... Uh, and it would probably get uh, quite a bit brighter than Sirius, so yeah. in terms of its final output, because what it did before was what we call a false super... kind of a fake supernova. It, it had this huge outburst in 1840s, early 1840s, but it didn't have enough... Um, it, it, it survived. In other words, a, a supernova would destroy uh, the... Uh, Hmm. the star and the output of energy would be quite a bit higher, so it would, it would certainly be a very bright object to hmm. see. It's, but it, it doesn't pose any hazard to Earth. Right, and there's the third suspect in this animation, of this other little thing going around, and the, the, it, it, yeah, it's so, a three-body problem, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, so now it's down to two stars, okay. uh, essentially, because one got absorbed. So the, the, th- the, the third one, the smaller outer one, actually ended up, by this theory, got absorbed by the other one. Uh, so that other one is in a, the smaller one, so you've got the massive Eta Carinae itself, and then its companion, or its so surviving companion, now has an orbit that takes it about uh, five and a half years. Right. So every five and a half years, the winds of these two stars collide, and astronomers all queue up telescopes all around the world to look at that 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 event where the, the two stars get close together, because they learn a lot from watching that every five and a half years. Mm. And I'm assuming there's a hell of a lot more behind what looks like a simple little animation. You you would you'd dim the lights of a city when you rain that on your computer, wouldn't you? Trying to yeah, they well that's right. They, they you know they, it's a, it's a it's effectively a cartoon. They would have done the sums. And no, stuff, but, but when you do the modelling of that sort yeah, of thing, to yeah. get your your numbers right. Oh, oh yes, that's God. right. It take, takes quite a while, and there's this sort of stitching together i mean these things are too complicated to analyze in huge detail but yeah. this is this is basically a sort of a if you like a quick summary or a sort of an, a thumbnail summary of what where they think the system is now and what projecting as to what it's likely to do in the future but it's steadily getting brighter um, and when you look at it through a telescope even a, a backyard telescope you can see these two giant lobes that it blew off in 1840 and they're still expanding outwards and mm. as each year goes by they get easier to see because they're getting bigger um, so and fanning out that's amazing to look through a telescope and see those mm. actually see those lobes far out okay uh, oh we've had liftoff this is something that's going to go um it sounds like a pink floyd song doesn't it they'll set the controls for the heart of the sun that's right uh, the sun's far far hotter than people probably realize i don't know it's, that corona is really yes, hot isn't well it? you know the, so the surface temperature let's call it six thousand degrees celsius mm-hmm. that's a photosphere that's the bit that generates the light that we see but surrounding the sun is its atmosphere essentially called the corona and we only really see that during a total eclipse of the sun, where the moon's blocking the sun's 
photosphere light and allowing us to see the the fainter corona. Mm. But what they know and discovered, uh, uh, to, you know, in, in relatively recent times, was the corona is very hot. I mean, it's several million degrees. It's way hotter than the surface of the sun. That's a big difference in number: so, six thousand degrees on the surface and several million yes. in its atmosphere. So yeah, it's hundreds of times hotter in the atmosphere yeah. than it is on the surface. And the question is, you know, how can that be? And this has been a puzzle for solar physicists for a long time. I mean, the, the so they measure temperature by the speed at which all the stuff is moving. So the corona is very doesn't have a lot of material there. I I mean, it's very, it's like a, almost like a vacuum, but there's these very high-speed um, nuclei like hydrogen and helium nuclei zipping around in that corona contained by the magnetic field. And it seems that there must be some way in which the magnetic field of the sun, which is quite strong, transfer, energy gets transferred into those particles. But that's really what the satellite's going to try to uh, tell us. What, what is the mechanism? How is that energy getting taken out of the sun and put into the corona? Where, where's this energy coming from? Okay. Here's the question. How did they test this to make sure the thing's not going to melt? Can we make something that's a million degrees? Did they put it in a hydrogen well, bomb and see if it was well, intact? It, it doesn't. It has these flybys. I think it does about sort of, uh, what is it, about seven or eight through the corona. Right. Um, and... Uh, but basically, what it's um, it's got, it's got a big heat shield in front of it that's about sort of like I don't know 100 millimeters thick or more, <laughs> uh, and it it prevents uh, and it's supposed to be able to keep the uh, the gear from okay. frying, but it can't stay there for long. All right. So it, it does these fly-throughs. There's going to be a bit of a whiz-bang, and we will see a lot of information coming out about the fly-through, and then it'll go out again, and uh, it's using Venus to adjust its orbit. Okay. Close by is fly by Venus to uh, get it. So. Oh, thanks, Venus. It'll be, uh, but it's not going to really be doing much now for a few years, so okay. it'll be... Um, and it's going to sniff it's, it's on its way. It's a, it's a very important uh, okay. probe of the inner solar system. Well, one thing to celebrate already, it got out of Earth's orbit. Thank you. That, that's always the danger bit, land, yeah, right. landing well, and take, taking off yeah, or taking right. off it's in like, this case. It's like birth, really. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's a very dangerous time for satellites. They can explode. Right. Now, here's a really weird thing within uh, the realm of astronomy. They're called fast radio bursts, if you haven't heard of them. Uh, you're going to find out about them and why they're so weird. No one really has much of an idea. No, what they well, they are. weren't really known until around 2009 or that sort of. You know, it's only in the last decade or so they've even really been talked about. Um, and uh, it was Jocelyn Bell that uh, first told us about them during a visit that she did here, a famous uh, radio astronomer who discovered neutron stars, um, the um, or pulsars, which are neutron stars. Yeah. So the um, so these are very bright flashes of radio energy, very intense, very powerful, that only last a few seconds. And so you, you, you only, and it's, it's, for a long time they weren't known, they just thought they were instrumental problems, but it's not. We now know that they're actually real. Um, to date, in the last decade or so, they've now identified only about 36 of these, but they're projected that they're happening thousands of times a day. So there's, they're happening all over the sky. But you've got to be very, looking right at one common. to see one. But yeah, but our instruments are very bad at detecting them. So they've now 
built a huge uh, new radio telescope system. It's based in British Columbia in Western Canada, and it's going to be finding them fast. It's found its first one already. It's still oh. in the testing phase. It hasn't really fired up yet, but it's going to start finding them at the rate of, they think, of one or two a day, maybe even a dozen a day. It just depends. They don't know enough about them. But the, the laugh is in, in this field that, you know, they've got 36 known of these events that have been detected and identified. We know they happened. And there's 43 theories or something like that that have already been published to explain them. And so we're hoping that we're going to tip that on its head that there's going to be enormously more, we'll know thousands of these things within a few years possibly uh, and be able to sort of whittle the th number of theories down to something that's believable. It's thought to be related to neutron star mergers possibly uh, which um, we've observed one, the gravitational waves of one, uh, that was a fluke uh, mm. That one there. Um, Did it give us a fast radio burst, though? Uh, not as far as I'm aware, mm. um, but um, that. But it could be the alignment of it to the axis of the rotation of the oh, orbit yeah. of those two stars as they sort of spiral in and die and mm -hmm. merge together. So uh, it's going to be an exciting time over the next uh, year or so until we oh. start to see the, these things become commonplace. Can we point to where they're coming from? Well, this will be able to tell us the positions and then they'll be able to line it up and see whether these flashes are, are related to particular galaxies or something like that. Um, right. You know, they should, they're coming from outside our galaxy, we know that. Yeah, they're coming or a from Russian bot. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not North Korea messing with well, our minds, you know, is these it? these sort of things, you know, they proved that, you know, early on in the first one or two that they, these, from the way the uh, radio signals were distorted, that they, it was very familiar to radio astronomers that these things had come from very great distances, uh, like t billions of light years, possibly. Mm. All right, you're going to have to explain this because this has, will have us scratching our heads, I think. Binary neutron stars, neutron stars, weirdest thing you can imagine next to a black hole. Um, their mergers, helping us find intelligent life. Yeah. Expand. Uh, this has actually been published in the, the Astrophysical Journal, which is one of the sort of major scientific uh, journals in astronomy and astrophysics. Um, so, but... Um, yeah, I wasn't quite sure what to, to make of this, but basically what they're saying is that um, uh, if you had an extraterrestrial uh, sort of advanced civilization, far more advanced than we are now, uh, in some distant galaxy, and they wanted to tell people that they're there, they would realise that neutron stars, when they start to merge... Uh, you can actually predict the time that they're going to merge very accurately. We can actually almost do that now because the orbit gradually decays. You can measure the speed at which the orbit's decaying. New, um, um, Einstein's theory of relativity gives you all the detail of how to do that and that can be predicted. So this civilization would be able to say within a very sh narrow time when two neutron stars in their galaxy are going to merge. And so, and they know the direction the beam was going to go and they'd know which two, uh, you know, what galaxies were in that direction. They could queue up a um, some uh, data that they wanted to send mm. and they would synchronise that data transmission exactly to coincide with the gravitational merger. Oh. So that because they would know that other intelligent civilizations out there in the universe would see their merger. We can do that now. I mean, we don't do it routinely, but within another century or two, that'll be a commonplace. Right. It's like using the <laughs> neutron star It draws your attention to that point. Like a flare. That's right. Using saying, that as hey, your look flare. At me, look at me. And, and then, then the planes going over the ship and you wave your arms. Yeah, so it... Um, 
Yeah, so basically the, the stats are that if they, they send, want to send 10 megabytes of data, which is nothing really, but mm. it's something, I suppose, um, then a tele radio telescope on Earth the size of the SKA, which is now in construction, this very large, um, huge radio telescope, yeah. and uh, the transmission would require one terawatt transmitter, and that would affect, putting that in perspective, that's about 10% of Earth's energy consumption oh. of current human civilization. So that's a big ask. Mm. But they are saying that this is an advanced civilization. They'll have solved that problem. They'll have oh, unlimited energy available. Hopefully. And, uh, and that would be uh, v detected from anywhere to up to 130 million years. Of course, it takes 130 million years for the signal to get there. So all that would be saying is our civilization might not be there in 130 million years. Nice to leave a note, though. But at least, hey, you know, we were there. And, yeah. and so, so you know, maybe when we see these neutron star mergers in the future, we should be looking for other signals that come into the radio telescopes that are timed to line up with it very closely. Good thinking, Batman, really, well, isn't it's, it? it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Yeah. Well, why not? Who, who would be, you'd be silly not to listen, at least. Yes. Well, you know, I mean... <laughs> we presume that, the, the, you know, there must be civilizations out there. I mean, it's, the, so. it's likely, given the number of galaxies we've got, it's, it's, un, it's possibly, it might be unlikely they're in our galaxy, but uh, uh, you never know that either. Uh, Can't uh. say. I mean, we've got a sample of one. Uh. Yeah, you're right. Gosh, it'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Just, yeah. just for the the um, contact thing, like Carl Sagan described to happen. Well, I'm sure the SETI Institute will be taking it, paying attention to this paper, and they'll be sort of, you know, waiting till we get sort of some other neutron star we, prediction or gravitational wave, and just see, you know, receipt that we're going to see more of these merging neutron stars a lot uh, more in the future and uh, see whether you actually get this electromagnetic signal uh, arrives almost the same time. Uh, anyway, we'll see. I wonder for how long it would take before it was passe in the news. You know, we've discovered intelligent life. Someone is repeating the numbers of pi or yeah, something well, to us. Right. Well, it, I think, uh, well, I don't think it would be... Well, and then it comes, mean, how long before it goes back well, to just this baby? Well, <laughs> well, the th thing is, you wouldn't you wouldn't have any opportunity to have any dialogue if it's coming from another galaxy because it takes millions of years for the signals to get to us. Yeah, and so you know, it's you know, the whole Earth will look different in a million years. Maybe in a day, it'll just over in a day. <laughs> there, there had a signal. It'd be nice to know line. there was something out there. Yeah, now even if you couldn't talk to them anymore. <laughs> okay. Uh, Grant Christie, thank you very, very much, and we'll talk again next week. Yeah, Good cheers. stuff. Cheers, Grant. And don't forget there are those links up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage uh, that are supplementary to what we've been talking about. And um, just appreciate the amount of work that's gone behind that animation depiction of Ita Carina and what, what's happened to it. Yeah. And if a big bright light happens in the night sky, that's probably your suspect, although not guaranteed. It could be. It could, could happen any time. Weekend Variety Wireless. After all the information you could possibly wish for at the top of the hour, uh, James Crute is going to have a look at the next latest instalment of the Mission Impossible franchise, which is keeping Tom Cruise alive, apparently. And a bit of a salute 
goodness me, the music's always been good. I'm thinking more of the TV series really here, but uh, there's still a legacy left from the music of Lalo Schifrin. He's done a lot of stuff, but this probably is most famous. And no expense spared um, when you think about it on the TV show. All the music that's in the background for the entire show is all written by L Lalo Schifrin, especially for it, like this sort of stuff.